Listen to The Astonishing Junk Drawer exclusively at patreon.com slash astonishinglegends. Is anyone here? I don't even know. I hope they are. Hashtag ontological shook. Who wrote Wine Country with Emily? Liz Kakowski. Speaking of blue entities, have you seen the documentary The Nightmare? Oh, yes. I've learned that this is part of my astral plane, but I spelled it P-L-A-I-N. No rules on the junk drawer. I didn't talk about my actual abduction. I'm thrilled to hear point of view from you. (laughs) Any thoughts or news on the South American alien mummy? Astonishing Legends would like to thank Squarespace, BetterHelp, Skylight Frame, Policy Genius, Masterclass, Uncommon Goods, our contributors at Patreon.com, and you, our listeners, for making tonight's show possible. On June 11, 1980, at around 4 in the afternoon, Police Constable Alan Godfrey was called to investigate a dead body found in a coal yard in Todd Morden, England. Todd Morden, or Todd as the locals call it, is a pretty quiet little village in West Yorkshire. The son of the owner of a coal yard had called it in, and when Constable Godfrey arrived, he told him, it's up on the top, explaining that the body rested on top of a 15-foot high pile of coal. Godfrey proceeded to climb the coal pile, where he was met with the open eyes and startled face of a dead man. He appeared to have been frozen forever in sheer terror. There was no obvious sign of injury beyond several small burn marks near the base of his skull and on the neck. They were roughly two inches long and one and a half inches across, and Godfrey described them as weeping wounds covered with some kind of green ointment, a substance that remains unidentified to this day. Strangest of all, the body seemed to have been placed on top of the pile of coal. There was no evidence of the victim having climbed up there, On top of that, Godfrey noted that he was laying on his back, with his arms carefully placed on his stomach, as though he simply laid down to take a nap. It took a little time to figure out who the man was as his wallet was missing. As was, oddly, his shirt, even though he had a jacket and a mesh tank top on. It was as if he'd been redressed quickly after his death, possibly by someone who didn't really understand how clothes worked. In addition to that, his hair seemed to be freshly cut. The victim turned out to be Zygmunt Adamski, and he didn't even live in Todd Morton. He lived over 20 miles away. He was happily married and had been missing for five days after having gone for groceries near his house. Again, 20 miles away in the village of Tingley, His family had been frantically searching for him. He even missed his goddaughter's wedding, for which he'd already written a speech. The true crime portion of this story is still unsolved and technically a cold case at nearly 44 years old. How in the world did a 56-year-old man wind up dead in repose, except for the look of terror on his face, missing his shirt but not his jacket, on a pile of furnaceite smokeless coal? All of this without any evidence of having climbed up there on his clothes or shoes, which, by the way, he would have had to do in broad daylight, albeit on a rainy day, sometime between 8.15 a.m. and 3.45 p.m. So far, this sounds like just a really unusual cold case, right? Shouldn't it be on a true crime podcast? Well, yes, it should, and it has been 
on many of them. But everything you've heard up until this moment is less than half the story, and that's why it's tonight's Astonishing Legend. Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook, and this is Coroner James Turnbull from the pilot for the British TV show Strange But True, which aired May 21st, 1993. This is one of the most puzzling cases that I've come across in 25 years. Join us tonight for part one of our two-part series on the mysterious circumstances surrounding Zygmunt Adamski's unsolved murder in 1980. And we're back. That we are, folks. Wow, this is an exciting two-part series. It's something we yeah. wanted to cover for ages, but are only just now getting around to... And the time must have been right because a lot of fortuitous things fell into place for this to be great. Yes. You know, a lot of shows of our kind have covered Zygmunt Adamski. However, we're betting the overwhelming majority of you probably haven't heard of him. And even some of you who think you have are probably thinking of one of the more controversial and famous UFO contactees in history, George Adamski. Remember the four Georges we talked about in the yes. UFOs in the Occult? Well, this is a different person, case and legend entirely. Yes, it is. Instead of the four Georges, we're now on to the two Adamskis. A few mm. quick announcements. We made a big announcement about the Nick Caps or Beanies a few weeks ago, and then the batch we had gotten turned out to be janky. So we had to order another batch, and by the time this show airs, they might be in the store, and if they're not, they will be soon. Well, the catch is, in the intervening time, the hat people sold out of the navy blue color. So now we have a new color, which I kind of like better. We have the blue, and then we have a smoke gray. So keep an eye on the store for those if you want some for this winter. It may be a little difficult to promise them by Christmas at this point in terms of shipping, but give it a shot. Also, all of the face-melting old logo mugs are in the store now in four <laughs> oh, different dear. colors. This is old school stuff. So look for those. They're, they are only $4, <laughs> speaking of four different colors, because the face might melt off. Caveat well, emptor. Yes. Uh, just make sure you read the description on those real well, because, well, mm. just read it. And soon we'll be getting in some of the other stuff, like these blanket Fortiana pints that the label came out a little too dark on, et cetera. So we got mm. another batch. Mm. So, so long and short is get over to the store if you're looking for either some bargains or also some stuff that was <laughs> out of stock because several things have come back in. Yes, it's a seconds and a regular sale. Yes. And in other news, we're about to join our good friend Jim Harold for a UFO roundtable he's hosting, along with a few of our other mutual friends that he'll be posting on December 26th. So keep an eye on his social media for that. And of course, we'll remind everyone. Yes, and last thing, this is the first of three shows in a row, and then we'll be dark until January 13th. That's really only two dark weeks before we're back on the third week with the first show of 2024. I can't make any promises, but we may release another junk drawer to the main feed during that time, which are generally exclusive to Patreon, but we don't want folks to get bored, so we'll see what we can do. And if you haven't already, find and subscribe to the two other shows on the Astonishing Legends Network. Well, we got a network, I guess. Yeah, we got a network. The now. Midnight Library and the new show called Scared All the Time. All righty, folks, that's enough housekeeping. So let's get into tonight's show. Our guest tonight is Philip Mantle, and we have to thank our good friend, Paul Gledhill of the Anomaly.co.uk podcast for connecting us with Mr. Mantle on extremely short notice. 
He is a world-renowned British author, publicist, lecturer, broadcaster, and UFO UAP researcher. He started researching UFOs in 1979 when he joined the British UFO Research Association, or BUFORA, which you've heard us mention numerous times on the show. At that time, he also became a member of the Yorkshire UFO Society, or UFOs, where in 1985 he was nominated as Investigator of the Year. Two years later, in 1987, he was appointed to the Council of Management for Bufora and subsequently acted as press officer, conference organizer, and secretary to the National Investigations Committee. Next year, in 1988, he was appointed as England's representative for the Mutual UFO Network, or MUFON, and in 1992, he was awarded an honorary membership in the Research Institute on Anomalous Phenomena, another organization we've mentioned on the show before. It is a science-based UFO study group in Ukraine. The year after that, he became director of investigations for Bufora, where he'd been for 13 years by that time. And in the ensuing years, he stepped down from many of these positions because he'd gotten so busy professionally, although he maintains his membership in RAIP, the science-based UAP research group we mentioned earlier out of Ukraine. He's been published in dozens of magazines, journals, and papers, including The Guardian, and has lectured on as many broadcast TV and radio shows running in all over the world, really. And in the past, he has been in senior editorial positions at numerous magazines and UAP-related blogs, and in 2015, launched his own publishing house, Flying Disc Press. Philip received a UFO Researcher Award from UFO Norway in 1994, as well as an award for 40 years of research from Outer Limits Magazine in 2019, and as if that wasn't enough, a Lifetime Achievement Award from the Academy of Paranormal Arts and Sciences in 2020. He's published over 30 books in at least six different languages around the world and, in fact, made a deal just yesterday to publish a new French edition of one of them titled Without Consent. That one actually contains Police Constable Alan Godfrey's account of his personal encounter with a UFO five months after he investigated Zygmunt Adamski's death. And tonight, Philip is here with us to talk about one of the most baffling cold case murders in history and its possible connection to the UAP phenomenon. Philip, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, good evening, gentlemen. My pleasure, I can assure you. Well, I hope I got all of that right. Didn't make any mistakes in there. You have uh, quite a lot of accolades and experience. There was a lot of details to sort. (laughs) Yeah, I've I've been around, as they say. (laughs) Yes. All right, Philip, I can imagine that you probably have numerous connections with the Adamski case. What can you tell us about those connections and why you would be the man to talk to about this? Zygmunt Adamski, back in the day when he when he disappeared, lived in a small place called Tingley in West Yorkshire in England. It's just about four or five miles from the city of Leeds. Well, I also lived in Tingley at the same time. And I was approximately about a mile from Mr. Adamski's location, the high school that I went to is literally right behind where he lives. There's the school, then there's the school football fields. And I used to take a shortcut home on a night across the football fields, which would literally bring me out at the uh, the grocer's shop where Mr. Adamski was heading that day. You know, I'd walk the further mile down the road to where I lived. It's a busy place. For those in, in, in this part of the country, the major motorway network from east to west is the M62. Well, there's a major junction right there where Mr. Adamski lives, literally within a stone's throw. And one of the other major motorways that goes from north to south is the M1, which is, again, just a mile or so down the road 
from where he lived. And it's a, even today, it's a very, very busy location. My daughter, my eldest daughter, still lives in the house that I lived in, you know, a mile and a half away with her family and, and, and husband. And not only that, my stepdad, my stepfather, God rest him, he's no longer with us, but he was called Bruno, Bruno Szynkowski, and he was also Polish, like Mr. Adamski was, and he worked with him at Lofthouse Colliery, just outside of Wakefield in West Yorkshire. I call him my father rather than my stepfather, but my father never learned to drive, so on occasion, Mr. Adamski would call at our house to pick my father up to take him to work. I didn't know him personally. I knew him to say hello to, and that was about it. And, of course, I just joined the Yorkshire UFO Society, which was based in Leeds, round about the time that Mr. Adamski disappeared. And a few months further on, of course, was the Alan Godfrey case. So I was kind of in the ideal place, if you like. I could take you to Mr. Adamski's house now. It's still there. The shop, the little grocer's where he was going to, the last time I was there, which is a couple of years back, was a little nail bar. Whether that survived the pandemic um, shut down, I don't know. But it was no longer a grocer's. But the building is still there. If, if not, it'll be a house or something else. And at the end of the road, you, you kind of turn off a main road to go to where Adamski lived. But that is a cul-de-sac. So there's no out at the end and there used to be a, a very large restaurant at the end i worked there at one point during the school holidays my friend was a chef there that's no longer there that's been demolished but it's still a dead end it's still a cul-de-sac so i know the location i know the story i knew mr adamski to say hello to like i said he wasn't a friend i didn't i never had a conversation with him because he would literally pull up outside the house and my father would get in the car and off they go to work. Usually that was early morning, so I never saw them anyway. But they used to work different shifts. So sometimes I would see him pick my father up or, you know, on an afternoon to do a, an afternoon shift and that kind of thing. You know, I was in the right place. That's why I think, you know, I've, I've got some information that might be of interest. Well, I can't wait to hear it. And another thing that uh, we wanted to point out to our listeners, we have a uh, covered something in the past and I, I thought it was interesting because you live just what about 10 minutes from the black monk of pontefract yes i do i live in pontefract in west yorkshire famous for the black monk yes <laughs> that's pretty great we had a lot of fun uh covering that we did a, a an in-depth series on that a few years ago so um that i thought that was interesting now how far is it now from where you're at now to where adamski lived it's just a couple of minutes down the motorway. I'm at 10, 15 minutes. Okay. Like I said, my daughter still lives at the house that we have there. Right. And literally, I'm I'm a mile from the motorway, the M62. And I think we go three or four junctions and I'm there. I'm there in no time at all. That's great. Okay. So next question, I guess, then is, can you tell our listeners about uh, what we want to talk about first is actually the discovery of Adamski's body and how that story came to pass? Yeah. I mean... I think it was in June 1980 that Adamski was found on a coal tip, if I'm right, in Todmorden. Yes. Todmorden is about 20 miles or so from Tingley. Todmorden lies right on the border with the next county over, which is Lancashire. Down the, the, you know, the centuries, that border has changed slightly. Sometimes it was in Lancashire. Sometimes mainly it was in West Yorkshire. 
it's a hill town. It's surrounded by moors and, and so on is Todmorden. Nice place. You know, I've been there several times. So at the time, if to bear in mind, Mr. Adamski was originally from Poland. His wife was also Polish. And some of the family relatives were over from Poland for a family wedding. Now, in 1980, of course, Poland was still sat of, part of the, the Eastern Bloc countries, the Warsaw Pact. I think the Solidarity Movement was just gaining initiative in Poland, but it hadn't quite met its breakthrough with, you know, that it did some years later. And I think he'd been out that day, and he decided to go to the local corner shop, as we would call it. I think he was after some potatoes, to be honest. And it is literally a short walk from his house. His house is off the main stretch where it goes up. It's round the corner. So you just literally walk around the corner and, he, and up the road, and there it is. I believe he even managed to get to the shop and purchase some potatoes, and he never made it back home. I mean, he literally disappeared. He ended up, I think it was five days later, on a, a coal tip in Todmorden, right next to the railway station or the railway yard there. His shirt had been removed, although he still had his jacket and trousers on, and he had a strange burn mark down the back of his head onto his neck. And I believe someone had been in the coal yard earlier that day and, and didn't notice anything. But he was found by a local man. They called the police, obviously. And, of course, the local policeman who was on duty at that time, in fact, there were two of them, but the one that we're all familiar with was P.C. Allen Godfrey. I've met the other police officer, but I can't remember his name. And, of course, you know, they examined the body. There was an inquest because it was a mysterious death. And uh, the coroner said he died of a heart attack or heart, heart failure. And that was the end of it. His body, strangely enough, was shipped back to Poland for burial. And like my father, my stepfather, who was from Poland, Mr. Adamski had said he, he'd never wanted to go back to Poland again. You know, he'd made his life here. My father fought in the military during the war and was demobbed in Scotland at the end of the war and lived here the rest of his life, you know. But Mrs. Adamski, apparently she wanted, for some reason, to go back to Poland, but he said, I'm not going. You know, he was shipped off and buried in Poland, and I think she followed not long after so if you wanted to make any further inquiries about a suspicious death, there was no chance of doing so because it was gone. He was in the Eastern Bloc and that was it, over and done with. And that's how it died. You know, it stayed that way as a, a mysterious disappearance with a, in inverted commas, a conventional outcome, you know, a mysterious death. But not. So whilst they said he died of a heart failure or a heart attack, it's not the coroner's job to figure out how the hell he got from Tingley to Todmanen and where the hell was he in those missing five days. The coroner's duty is to find out the cause of death. And that's what they did. And that was it over and done with, you know? So it left people scratching the head. But like I said, his family was gone and that was it. You know, that's how it ended up. So when you say a coal tip, it's a pile of coal, right? It's a pile of coal because, uh, you know, what we still use coal for a whole host of things in those days. In fact, as a, a man who worked down the, the coal mines, my father worked down the mines all his life. Part of his salary, if you, if you want to call it that, 
is we used to get free coal. So, you know, our house had a big, a big oven, a big fire, and we would use coal to fuel it. And at one point, literally a, a truck would come and they would pile, the dump a ton of coal on our driveway. And my father and my brother used to shovel it into a wheelbarrow and we had, we had a, a storage place, we call it a coal cellar, to keep the coal. Now, one of the things that people have commented on about the location of Mr. Adamski's body is that there were no marks on this coal tip. You know, it was as if he'd just been dropped from the sky. Well, I, you know, as a kid, you know, I jumped on the coal tip. I got a thick ear for it now and again, you know, because I got mucky. But when you come down the coal tip, the coal kind of falls down after you. It doesn't always leave any sign that you've been there at all. It's just the way that it, it reacts. Thankfully, in later years, they, they then started to bring the coal in sacks and then we'd put it in our coal house for us. So, yeah, coal was still used in industry at that time. Uh, and it, so it wasn't, wasn't anything unusual. But the fact is, you know, there is no connection that I'm aware of between Tingley and Todmorden, apart from the fact they both begin with T, you know. So where he was in those five days was open to speculation. But that wasn't the coroner's job. Coroner's job to say, how did this man die? There was no sign of any foul play. They couldn't identify this material that was on the back of his neck and this burn mark. But nonetheless, it was a conventional explanation for his death. Let me see if I'm understanding you correctly. You're saying a lot of people seem to fixate on the fact that it seemed like it wasn't clear that a path had been made to take his body up there or he had climbed up there. You're saying that that, that wouldn't have necessarily happened based on your experience of climbing on coal tips yourself. Yeah, I mean, I was, I was you know, a mischievous kid. You know, you got this huge ton of coal in, in your front yard. Yeah. Then it's inviting, you know, it's exciting for a kid to <laughs> jump all over it, you know. Sure. Then my mother would go mad because I was covered in coal dust. But there was literally no sign you'd been anywhere near it because the coal used to, seem big lumps about that big, they would just roll down behind you and that was it. Right. So that's one thing that like a lot of people fixate on. And what you're saying is, ah, I don't necessarily think there would it would have been clear if somebody had dragged him up there or he had dragged himself up there. Conversely, though, his clothes were supposedly pretty clean and his body didn't seem like he had struggled his way up the coal tip himself. It was obvious. And, and Alan Godfrey commenting on this, it seemed that that wasn't his place of death. Whatever yeah. Mr. Adamski had been, he passed away someone else, somewhere else, and his body dumped there. But there was no evidence to show that either. It was just an, you know, uh, an idea, if you like. But again, that wasn't the coroner's job. Where he'd been, where he died, how he got there, was not part of the coroner's decisions. It was just to figure out how he died, and of course. You know, his wife didn't put any uh, pressure on the police, didn't cause a, a say, you know, he'd been kidnapped or anything like that. So, you know, they were all happy, washed their hands of it, and it was over and done with because he was gone and she was gone as well. And they were back in Poland. And even if you did think this was foul play, well, there was nothing you could do about it anyway. They're gone. This is Kate Carlson. Thank you for listening to Astonishing Legends. Let's get back to the show. 
there's all kinds of speculation about this case because it's so famous. You see these things online. People are speculating with lots of different wild theories. I had read somewhere that another relative had moved in with them and there was some strife at home and that sort of thing. Have you ever heard anything, any kind of details? There was no relatives moved in. There was relatives visiting because it was a family wedding of some description that was taking right. place. And there had been a little bit of strife between Mr. Adamski and his wife, simply because she wanted, for some reason, I don't, we don't know why, she wanted to move back to Poland. And he was adamant, well, I'm not going. You know, he'd made his life here. And we have a big Polish community in England, many of which did settle here after the war, like my father did, you know. And my father never wanted to go back, you know, and he, he, was, he was the same. But again, you know, it's a married couple. I mean, come on, yeah. you know, guys, you know, I'm married. We don't always agree. There's a bit of trouble and strife every now and again. So I don't think it was anything out of the ordinary, but uh, it may be relevant to what may have happened and what, you know, we were told later on. Did they have children? I believe they did, but I'm I'm not a hundred percent sure to be honest. Right, and so even if they did, all of the they would have gone back to Poland as well. Maybe, but I, I know I know Mrs. Adamski did. Yeah, and it seemed rather strange to me that his Zygmunt, not wanting to ever go back to Poland, but yet as soon as he's dead, his body is shipped off there to, for burial. You know. But that's what happened. Before we turn the page on Godfrey's exper ensuing experience, which I want to get to here in a minute, I wanted to ask one other question is like, and this is, I guess it's so speculative, I don't know that we can answer this question, but in terms of familial pressure to return to Poland, is this just family members trying to make one of the daughters of the family happy? Or do you think there's a larger pressured reason to get back there? Like, why would you go so far as to torture someone who's married into your family to get them to go back to Poland at this time? Well, I don't know. I can't answer that question. We don't know anything about the nature of his relatives that came over, how close they were to the family. I'll give you an example of my own father. His father and his brother were killed fighting the Germans on their entrance into Poland. He had another brother who was then murdered by the Germans, and it was only survived by his mother and a younger brother. So he had no close relationship. He, he corresponded with his mother on and off down the years. But it wasn't until the 1990s, when my father was getting on in years, that we decided to look into his family because he had a baby brother. And we actually found him and brought him over to England. And my father hadn't, didn't know if he was even alive. So he had no close family ties. But we can't say that with Mr. Adamsk. We have no idea how close him and his wife were with family members back in Poland. It would appear that Mrs. Adamski had closer ties to Poland than he did because he said, I'm not going, you know, this is my home. And had we not found my, my uncle after 50 some years from the war, my father would never have gone back, gone to Poland again. He went once to meet his brother and fetch him over here. But during the years in the 1980s, when he was corresponding with his mum, he had no desire to go there whatsoever, you know. So how close he was with other family members and what they were up to, we'll have no idea. We'll never find out, I don't think. What do you think about what Godfrey said about just the look of terror on Adamski's face that he saw when he found him on the coal pile? I've got to be honest and fair to Alan, I think it's just gibberish, you know. <laughs> You know, you. I look at, I mean, we all look at people and we describe people's faces differently. You know, oh, this gentleman here, Forrest, 
he's dying with a cough, but he's got a lovely smile on his face. You're there with your hands on your chin. You look very studious and serious. There's no such thing as frightened to death. It doesn't exist. Okay. We do express our emotions visually through our facial expressions, but it's just his interpretation of what he saw, you know? What do you think about ideas that there was something more going on, some kind of conspiracy, something related to the Eastern Bloc or, or Russia or something else like that that might have led to his untimely death? You know, it was a coal miner. Yeah. You know, it, it was a, a common old garden coal miner like my dad. My father left Poland when, when the Germans invaded, joined the military, so active service throughout the war. And when he finished, he was actually demobilized in Scotland. He had no skills, he had no training. So the only thing he could do was use his brawn, you know, his muscle. Mm-hmm. And he went mm-hmm. down the mines and so did many others. You know, and, and Mr. Adamski was of the same. They were just ordinary people. You know, you, you would have passed them in the street and not give them a second look. So to say that this was the KGB or anything else, I think is just bonkers. Okay. Yeah, I'd rather believe they was abducted by aliens and the KGB involved, <laughs> you know. <laughs> you know. That's my opinion. You know, right. no, I, I know the area. My father knew this gentleman very, very well indeed, as did his colleagues at, at the Cod. And you have to remember in those days, when you worked down the mine, it wasn't a job. It wasn't just a job. Everybody stuck together. Right. You know? Right. It was totally different. Um, although I lived at Tingley, I was originally born a few miles away, which is a small village. And you either, when you, you either worked down the mine or the mill, or some, or on the railway. My own father, I've been talking about my stepfather, my father worked on the buses. So to say there's any KGB or anything else involved is just, you know, it's just it's just laughable. Shall I tell you what we were told about Mr. Adamskin? It might explain Sure, things. sure. I mean, I was part then of the Yorkshire UFO Society. That had been formed by two brothers, Graham and Mark Birdsell. Graham went on to publish the hugely successful UFO magazine here in the UK and sadly passed away a few years ago. And they had their their HQ in Leeds, which was just down the road from where we lived, a few miles away. I joined them as as a rookie, didn't know much. So when this took place, I had literally just started to test the ufological waters, so to speak. Now, I can't remember the date. It was a few years after Mr. Adamski died, and Mark Birdsell used to live in a what we call a flat, you call an apartment, in an apartment block. It was on the seventh floor in Leeds, and that was kind of the HQ of our, our local UFO society. And Mark had a call one evening from a lady who said that she was a relative. I believe she said she was the niece of Mr. Adamski. And that she had some information that she thought we would be interested in. Because every now and again, the Adamski thing would appear in a magazine or a newspaper, you know. And she said that what had happened was it was his wife's relatives who'd got hold of Mr. Adamski and tried to put some pressure on him to actually go back to live in Poland. And that he'd been held in some kind of shed and I believe there were some marks on his hands as well. And she told us that he tried to get out of this shed, scramble his way up. That's when he got the marks on his on his hands. And there were some shelving units that had old tins of stuff in it, been there for years and years and years. And, of course, he knocked one of these over, and it fell down the back of his head and his neck, and it burnt him. Acid. 
it was some old material that had been, you know, fermenting there for, right. for, for years and years and years. And he'd taken his shirt off to mop it up, and his captors had given him some ointment to try and cool it. And eventually, in his attempts to try and escape, he did die of a heart attack, you know, or heart failure. I know how that feels because I have I suffer from heart failure. And of course, the the people that, that were holding him, you know, took him away and dumped him in some obscure place, which was in Todmorden. By the time his body was located, they were gone anyway. They were back in Poland. You know, so this is what she told Mark. I was there when the phone call came in. Who who is this person that's providing this information again? It was a lady who claimed to be the niece of Zygmunt Adamski. She was a oh, niece wow. of the family. Okay. And of course, she's not telling us about UFO sightings or anything like that. This is criminal proceedings. Right. right. So Mark's advice to her, I mean, Mark was noting down what she was telling him. And I'm still there. I didn't know what the call was about. You know, I, I'm in the, the flat with him. And he could see a concerned look on his face, but that was about all. He advised her to call the police. If what she was saying is correct, then I mean, it's a criminal matter. Now, whether she ever did call the police or not, you know, we never heard from her again. But that's the information that, that we were given. We can't, you know, validate that this was a family member. But, I mean, we weren't in the telephone book. You know, the Yorkshire UFO Society wasn't in the phone book. You had to search us out to, in order to find Mark's telephone number in his flat, in his apartment. So she'd obviously done that, and that's what we were told. And, you know, it, I find that fascinating. Well, a couple of questions. Do you believe that she was really the niece or related in some way to Adamski or that she was put up to it or an agent of some kind? I've got no reason not to believe it um, yeah. because she never phoned again. You right. know, there was never any follow-up. There was no ever offer of evidence or names of the individuals involved or anything like that. It was just one of those phone calls out of the blue that none of us were expecting. And it kind of, for me personally, and I can't prove this, it's just me and my, my opinions, it kind of makes sense because of the location where Mr. Adamski lived. It's a very busy place, but actually on the road where he lived, because it's a cul-de-sac, you don't get much traffic and you don't get a lot of people out and about because there is nothing there. There's a, there was a local shop and that was it. And oh, There was the restaurant, but the restaurant wasn't open on a morning. It was open on an evening. That's gone now. But it, so... If you wanted to grab somebody, it's quite easy. A few years back, before the pandemic, I filmed a piece there for a TV documentary. And, you know, they got the van at the side of the road with all the equipment, and we're out on the road. And this is when I met the other police officer that was involved in it with Alan. And we hardly saw a soul come walking past, you know? So, Philip, there are two things, though, that to me, and they're very odd, as much as this case is, that don't seem to line up with maybe an abduction thing. And that one, he was reported to have gotten a fresh haircut or was freshly shaved during the five days. And the other thing is about the ointment and that uh, James Turnbull, the coroner at the time, said the ointment with the residue uh, from the weeping wound, as described by Alan, was sent to toxicology and the scientists there. And they could never 
and still have never determined what that salve was. And then I would imagine, well, if it was, you know, Polish immigrant relatives, it would be something you got from the chemist, something available, not something unknown. What do, what do you think of those two elements? All I would say is where Mr. Adamski lived, there's no chemist there. I mean, yeah. there was the corner shop for your potatoes and that. So there was no chemist there. There was no, it wasn't one within walking distance. That is now not far away, but there wasn't there at the time. And yeah, he couldn't identify the substance on the back of his neck. And that's a fact. You have to wonder, you know, could it have just been aloe vera, <laughs> like aloe plant or something? It could have just been something they had in their pocket. And they thought, yeah. well, try this. You know, we've got nothing else. What I did do, I asked my father what he thought and what did his colleagues who worked in the, the colliery, what was yes. their opinion? Yeah. And again, it's not proof positive or anything like that, but to a man, they all said it was the wife's relatives had done something mm. to him simply because she wanted to go home. Uh, he was adamant he wasn't going. So it seems suspicious that the first time her relatives are here for a family wedding, he disappears and ends up dead. And off she goes back to Poland. You know, I don't know whether he had a, an insurance policy. He will have done with the trade union. They were all part of the National Union of Mine Workers. And I know when my father passed away, he had a small benefit from them. Nothing huge, but, you know, and she was gone in a flash, you know, and, and the rest of them gone also. So that, that was the talk amongst these colleagues who worked down the mine with him and, and my father as well. It's an almost a, a comical story in a way that that he's like the the wedding is happening because that's one of the details you hear about is how he had written a speech for his goddaughter's wedding. And so that would rule out maybe a suicide or some other thing happening that he clearly had in, intended to uh, attend that wedding. And so these folks come into town. His wife is wanting to go back. The relatives strong arm him. They kidnap him, take him to the shed. And they're they're essentially trying to muscle him in to moving with his wife back to Poland, and they're leaving him in there in isolation. And at some point, he tries to get out some acid or some kind of you know whatever household chemicals spill on him that burns him. They come back. They actually feel bad about this. They try to help him treat it. And in the course of all of this, he has a heart attack and dies. And then they're like, oh, my God, what have we done? And they give him a haircut. Yeah. That's, I don't know about the haircut. Well, I want to come back about that. But, but they're like, this has gone too far. And now we have this body. We're going to be tried for murder. This is what are we going to do? They load him into a car or van. They take him to a place where no one's around. He's already died beforehand, which is what Godfrey thought. And they put him up on top of this pile, which that also, uh, to Forrest's point about strange circumstances, it's like, why on top of a 15-foot coal tip? Yeah. Why not just on the ground in the coal yard and get the hell out of there? Like, what what would be the point of that part of it, I wonder? Who knows? I mean, you know, people do strange things when they panic. Um, I mean, maybe there was somebody around. I remember the kids, we, we used to do a thing called arm and a leg. You get all of your two arms and somebody else would get over the two legs and you'd swing them and, and let go. And it's surprising, you know, how far you can go and you do <laughs> yeah. that kind of thing. Right, right. You know, but assuming this was the case, the scenario we've just laid out, the perpetrators would know that by the time the police did an investigation, et cetera, et cetera, they would be gone. And it's almost like the weirder they make it, the harder it is to sort of figure out what happened. It doesn't really matter whether they sat him on a bench or, or dumped him on a coal tip or whatever. 
by the time it had all you know surfaced, they would be back in Poland and nobody could do anything about it. You know, and I have to remember his wife reported him missing. His car was still there. So he hadn't had some kind of mental attack and got in his car and drove off somewhere because his vehicle was still there. But like I said, it's in easy access of, of the main motorway route all around the UK where he lives. And, you know, and I, like I say, I used to go to Todmorden, but I didn't go on the motorway. I go a different route. And it's not, it's not a simple place to find if you don't know where you're going, you know. So... It's that it's that that bothers me. Is why would they dump him in Todmorden? There's plenty of places locally. I mean, where we live at Tingley, there used to be a lot of farming in the area and whatever. And we have what's called this is called the rhubarb triangle. So it's not the Bermuda Triangle. <laughs> it's the you know it's the rhubarb. And in these areas, they were known for growing rhubarb. But what they do, they'd force grow it. So now they'd have these long huts. And they would literally grow rhubarb in the dark with a candle. You know, they'd force grow it. And, of course, a lot of that industry had gone, but they were, we called them rhubarb sheds. So they were like a normal shed, but were stretched incredibly long. These were dotted all over the place. And as a kid, we used to roam over the fields and play in them. You know, they're totally empty. So there's plenty of places nearby to dump somebody. If you, if you didn't know the location, you'd soon find one, you know. So why Todmorden? I don't know. You know, because they never found his wallet, right? Maybe their idea was that it would buy him the time they needed to flee the country as we would take him to a town where he is unlikely to be recognized on site, yep. remove his ID, and that gives us a little more time to get out of the country. By the time this all surfaced, they were long gone. And then, of course, like I said, being an Eastern Bloc country, even if they had been a, a police inquiry, they would never have been able to extradite them anyway. You know, it's as simple as that. So in, in that respect, if this is true, it's, it's almost like the perfect crime, you know? Yeah. The coroner says he died of natural causes and the, the potential perpetrators are, are gone and never to be seen again. The way that the body was found has not necessarily a lot of details that match up, but it reminded me quite a bit of the Great Mole Error Mystery with Peter Gibbs, where he was found in a, in a weird place in that... It was passed by there on on mole by farmers uh, who didn't see him until even a search conducted didn't uh, turn up the body. Just found in a very strange manner, not fitting with how somebody who may have fallen out of an airplane fell on top of, uh, you know, the hills there in an awkward place. And with Adamski, it's just the explanation here, it kind of lines up, but there's some nagging facts about it. Like one, again, that matches other cases where you hear about uh, clothes put back on hastily by, as Alan said, looked like somebody who didn't really know what they were doing. They were not putting his shoes back on correctly. The socks were not correctly. And I've heard that, uh, again, with Betty and Barney Hill. Terry Lovelace also reported something where his socks were put on sideways, where any human, you know, even if you're quickly fitting somebody uh, back with their clothes was on wrong and uh, the boots were were a mess. So again, not to make not to draw conclusions where there aren't any. It's just like there's some odd enough things there that I can see why people would make a, a UFO abduction connection. I think the only two reasons that the UFO part comes in is one, the gentleman's surname, Adamski. You know, mm. Adamski is connected with ufology, you know, the Space Brothers and his photographs 
largely dismissed now as a hoax. But nonetheless, he was part of UFO folklore. Every student of the subject should know the name Adamski. I said to my father, is, is, is Adamski a, a rare name in, in Poland? Or, you know, he, and he, he just didn't know. I said, you know, is it a common name? But he'd, he'd no idea. I mean, my father left Poland when he was 18 to fight in the war. So, you know, wasn't he didn't know that much about it. So there's one Adamski. His name automatically puts him in the UFO ideas. And then six months later, of course, he's Alan Godfrey, you know, had his own encounter, Godfrey being the first police officer on site when his body had been found. And that's the only reasons I can see that there's any, that people have made a connection with UFOs when, in my humble opinion, there is, this really isn't one. Yes, a strange and suspicious death with not all the answers are there. I've, I've no doubt about that. I mean, we had a, a mass murderer reign terror on this part of the world for a number of years called Peter Sutcliffe, also known as the Yorkshire Ripper, you know, and some of the ways he displayed his victims left the police scratching their head. They were very peculiar, but nonetheless he did. So I, I only think if, if he was called something else, if he had a different surname, we would probably have seen it in the newspaper as a suspicious death, and that would have been the end of it, you know? This is where I would like to point something out to our listeners and to people who I think have a broader perception of ufology and UAP investigations. You're a prominent researcher. You've been in this field for decades, as we said in our introduction of you. Um, you have a lot of accolades, awards. You've published a lot of books about this. You've done a lot of research. And I think that sometimes there's a perception among folks who aren't as steeped in it that uh, someone like you would come into this and be part of the reason this case is so conflated with a, an alien abduction. And here you are sitting on our show saying, yeah, I don't, I don't think, I think it's just a weird murder. I think it's, you know, X, Y, and Z. Even if the familial pressure story isn't the story, it probably was some other weird thing and it doesn't have anything to do with aliens. And that's what you are saying about Zygmunt Adamski right now. Absolutely. I think it is a suspicious death, but inflicted maybe by accident, but with humans behind it, you know, and, and I'll, I'll leave it at that. And you are saying this as a person who clearly is open to the idea of alien abduction and UFOs and UAP phenomena. Absolutely. 100%. Okay. So that's something I want to get out there. I think that that's a, an interesting take. And I think that I really appreciate your telling us what you told us. This is information that uh, we hadn't gotten anywhere else. And I think it sheds new light on this uh, particular story, which is fascinating. And I also think it does Alan Godfrey a service because, you know, having read his book, which I greatly enjoyed, I found him to be a very funny writer, somebody that I would like to spend time with. And it's my understanding that he's kind of pulling back from all this stuff at this time and maybe has some things going on. But in a different time and place, after reading his book, I felt like he would be someone that would actually be really fun to have a pint with. <laughs> so coming down to his experience, though, what I did take away from the book and what I liked about his book in particular, which is um, Who or What Were They?, you know, on the cover, he's got a, a picture of a, a gray alien and a police car. And you think when you're getting a you look at the cover, never judge a book by its cover, that you're going to go, oh, this is going to be this big alien story. But his personal take on this is the same as yours, in my opinion. It's like, I never said this case had anything to do with UFOs. However, later, something happened 
that wound up getting those two things merged together in this way. And it just caught like wildfire and went around the world. And that's this connection that uh, somehow aliens were linked to Adamski's death. And he was the investigating officer. And there's this perception that that all happened on the same day or within a couple of days, but that's not really the case. So now what I would ask you to do is talk to us a little bit about what happened to Constable Godfrey a few months later. Yeah, so it was six months further down the line, but in November of 1980. Alan was a, a police constable in Todmorden, part of the West Yorkshire Police Force. And he drove a, what we used to call in those days a panda car, but it, a police car. He was on uh, night duty on his own. So he was alone in the, in, the, in the police car. He'd actually been looking that night for some cows that had gone missing. And uh, he'd been around, you know, local places looking for these cows. I think it was somewhere, you know, gone five o'clock in the morning. He went down into the town centre of Todmorden. He actually saw a, a police officer on foot patrol. I think he stopped and had a chat with him. And he thought, well, it's getting near to my time at the end of my shift. I'll have one last look for these cows. And that's me finished for the night. So he set off up the main road through Todman. And I'm going to say the main road, gentlemen. This is not like you're hiring America. It's a, you know, it's a little road. And, you know, he flicked the indicator on in his car to turn into the road that led to the police station. When he spotted up above, you know, in front of him in the road, this light. So he didn't turn off. He kept going. And he wondered what it was at first. Bear in mind that there was a, a, a large mill by that, that location with people working in it and so on. And he thought it might be something related to that. But as he got closer, he realized it wasn't just a light. There was this object blocking the road in front of him. It was just above the ground. So it wasn't on the tarmac of the road. It was just above it. It was shaped like one of the old-fashioned children's spinning tops. It was dark in color. Alan described the top part of it having a row of panels or windows, and the bottom half was rotating. And he could even see the debris underneath it on the road swirling around. So he stopped the patrol car. He got on the radio to go back to the police station and couldn't get through. In fairness to Alan, he said that's not unusual in the, in the town because the, it's surrounded by hills and things like that. He had a clipboard some paper on it, he got hold of that, started to draw this thing that's in front of him. Bear in mind the patrol car is, is, you know, is stationary. The next thing he remember, he's several hundred yards down the road, beyond where he'd initially been, now driving the patrol car. No recollection of, you know, of putting it into gear, stick shift as you guys call it in America. So he turned around, went back to the location. Now it had been raining during the night, so the, the road was wet. But where this object had been, the tarmac was dry. So Alan got back to the police station. He noticed that his police boot was split and there was some kind of mark on the instep of his foot, which wasn't there the night before. He reported the incident and... When he went back on shift, he, he was asked to write a, you know, a full report, which he did. And that was Alan's sighting. And when, when you speak to Alan about it, he said, if, as you know, our police officers don't carry firearms. Alan said, if I'd have had a brick 
or a stone, I could have thrown it at that thing. It was that close and it would have gone clunk, you know? So eventually, Alan linked up with local UFO investigators. Uh, Jenny Randalls was one. Harry Harris was another. And they obtained the services of two professional psychiatrists to put Alan under regressive hypnosis. I think they did this three times. On each occasion, they left him with a, I don't know how they do it, but he couldn't remember what he'd revealed under hypnosis. And they were filmed. In the end, they decided to show Alan the recording of the video film they made of it. It's not in the greatest of condition. Bear in mind, we're going back to 1981 now. It was a video cameras weren't that common. But nonetheless, you see Alan lying down. And at first, he sees this light up ahead and he says, he thinks it might be a bus, you know, bringing workers to the mill. And he says, it's not a bus. And his voice changes. You know, he's got that curious sound in his voice and you can see the expression on his face. And all of a sudden, Alan throws his arms up across his face like that and he literally shouts out, you know, it's a light, it's a light, it's a light. And he goes on to describe seeing two types of beings. One was a human-like guy with a long robe and a beard and a small cap like uh, the people of the Jewish faith wear. I forget what they're called. And this being was called Yosef, not Joseph, Yosef. Then Alan kind of screwed his face up at one point and went, he sees these other creatures that had a, their heads were shaped like the old-fashioned light bulbs. And he says, they want me to get on the table. I'm not getting on the table. And I say, what are you doing now, Alan? I'm getting on the table. So he gets on the table. If that's not strange enough, Alan then sees a black dog. And so I'm one of the few people who've seen the, um, the hypnosis video. I transcribe it all in my, in my book without consent. And um, when you ask Alan about the hypnosis, he said, look, Philip, that thing was on the road and I saw it. I drew it. It's not my, I said, that for the hypnosis, I don't know. You know, you decide for yourself. So again, Alan's not putting the rubber stamp on the hypnosis and saying this proves this, that, and the other. But it is fascinating. And of course, if we talk about the black dog, well, the black dog is well known in folklore here in the UK. I don't know about the US, but certainly here in the UK, it's also a terminology for depression. I'll give you an example. Our late wartime Prime Minister Winston Churchill suffered from depression, but he called it the black dog. Up in the Yorkshire Dales National Park, Mark Burstall and I went to investigate a, a, a sighting there. A chap had written to us, we phoned him, we said, we'll come and visit you. Now, when we got there, the village, if that's what you want to call it, was just half a dozen houses. They didn't even have a, a number on the doors. So we knocked on the first door and said, you tell us where Mr. So-and-so lived. And this lady said, oh, have you come about the ghost dog? And of course, it was the, the black dog that ran down the village with the big glowing eyes. So that's just one example of, you know, the black dog in folklore. But here you have Alan Godfrey in Todmorden under hypnosis describing a black dog. There's a black dog on there. It's one of those bits of the hypnosis is, is kind of, you know, missed out by people. But it, it's a fascinating thing. It really is. And that is Alan's case in general. Alan asked for permission 
from his chief constable, that's the top man, the boss, to speak about this in public and go on television in uniform. And he was given the all clear. Yes, indeed. And that's what he did. Hello, everyone. I'm Tristan Carlson, and this is Astonishing Legends. Let's get back to the show. Some of us here have heard of the Black Shuck with a paranormal-themed appearance and event, uh, I think early 16th century, perhaps, but well-noted by, by some here. So, yeah, it's not as quite as popular or a cultural or mythological touchstone here, I think, but we have heard, I think... Uh, with the case of David Huggins, where he claims, along with this motley crew, this menagerie of creatures that came to to visit him, one was a tiny, hairy little man, like a, a miniature Sasquatch. So we've heard of all kinds of creatures, but that the black dog, it seems more symbolic to me when I when I read that. Absolutely, you know, and, and like I said, there are parallels in in folklore and history, and you know the area itself has had its own UFO sightings in and around. Todmorden uh, is surrounded by hills and moors. It floods every now and again because the water just washes down from the hills. And um, but it was unlikely. It was you know it's not the kind of thing you expect. You know it was really a, a bolt from the blue. And in, again, in fairness to Alan, he doesn't rubber stamp the hypnosis. He just said, "Yeah, that's what." came out under hypnosis. I don't know. I can't remember that. Do you know of any other cases in UFO lore where people have seen a dog on a craft and in an abduction experience? Well, I, I think Alan's attitude about this and his his demeanor, his position, being, you know, it's a very, very subjective experience, as I'm sure you know, and, and also he's trying to be very objective about it. I think that adds a lot of credibility, at least for us. And we found it refreshing where he was this happened, make of it what you will. It's up to your interpretation, at least with the hypnosis. However, I will swear that I did see something. I did see a UFO in the middle of the road. Yeah, no one could tell me different on that. Yeah, and I think it reflects Alan's character as well. Alan had commendations as a police officer. He was a very down-to-earth, almost like an old-fashioned kind of police officer. He would, if you were you were found with a minor misdemeanor. It's probably the type of policeman who would give you a good telling off, a warning, don't do it again. Not the kind of guy to issue a penalty or a fine or arrest you, unless he really had to, you know? I don't think it was the kind of police officer you'd want to argue with either, you know? And that's the kind, of, there were a lot, you know, he wasn't uh, on his own like that. There was a number of officers like that in, in, the, in those days, and Alan was one of them. But like I said, he was well-respected, commendations you know he enjoyed his work you know he was a good police officer and it was a great shame that what followed but but i think the way alan has responded to things is a reflection of his character although we have skeptics in this country they don't know any of them that they're saying that alan is lying or he made it up or he's fantasizing something they may have an explanation for it but it's none of those and, you know, I, I have no reason to disbelieve him whatsoever. What is your personal opinion, specifically as a UFO UAP researcher, what's your personal opinion on hypnotic regression? Ooh, I say that's a tough question. And it's one we've been dealing with recently as well. When I was at Bufora, we weren't allowed to use uh, regression. It was barred. But the way I look upon it is that 
it's down to the individual, the abductee, whatever you want to call them. And it's for them to make the call whether they want to use it or not. And then when they've had it, when they've undergone hypnosis, whether they believe themselves if it was of any use to them or not. And I'll give you an example. I sat in on, this is in the 1990s, I sat in on two hypnosis sessions. And the guy doing the hypnosis was, again, was a, a, uh, a clinical psychologist. He'd been hired to do it. And there were two different gentlemen. And it was somebody else doing it, not me. I, I didn't ask any questions and nothing. I was to sit there and keep my mouth shut. And the first chap, I mean, he was really up for it. You know, he was very excited. He told us the story and this period of missing time. And you were sure as eggs as eggs that as soon as he went under hypnosis, this abduction story was going to manifest. Not a thing. I mean, absolutely nothing. He just recounted what he'd already told us. There was a second guy, you know, a couple of weeks later, same psychologist. He was the opposite. He was very quiet, very calm, very steadfast. And you thought, not going to get anywhere here. But the entirely opposite happened. You know, when he went under hypnosis, he recounted this typical alien abduction scenario. So that kind of surprised me on, on both events. Now, I'm just preparing a book for next year. And I've asked this question about hypnosis to um, two abductees in the, in the US and one here in the UK. They all underwent hypnosis. And I said, well, what do you think? Was it of any use to you? One was the late Calvin Parker, Pascagoula case. Calvin said, not really. I could remember it all anyway, you know? And, and the other two said, well, no, not really, Philip. You know, not really. It, it might have sharpened a few details, but that was it. So it's down to the individual, you know, the experience of the abductee. Uh, and I think what certainly happened in the 1980s and in the 1990s, as people like Bud Hopkins became well-known and, and, and what have you, in cases like this, they would look at, hypnosis as the first option whereas me i i think it should be the last option you know you you garner all the information first and then then and only then at the end of the day if it's something the the experiencer wants to undergo then it's up to them you know it's not for you to say i think you should do this or i think you should do that what is interesting is when you look on mass i'm not talking individual cases here when you look at the information on mass, it's not that different. So you have cases where people can remember everything consciously, right? They'll tell you this, that, and the other. When you compare that to hypnotic testimony of other cases, they don't differ that much. So is that an argument that hypnosis doesn't necessarily tap into your fantasies, your subconscious, and, and you make things up? But uh, I'll leave it there, you know, I'll leave, leave it down to the individuals to decide for themselves. And um, the book I'm actually doing next year is all about hypnosis in, in abduction oh, wow. cases. Okay. So there's the story of what they told us, then there's the transcripts of the hypnosis, and you, you were allowed to make your own conclusions at the end of it, you know. But there are others who would argue differently. I'm, for example, I spoke to Kathleen Marden. She's well-known in, in this field. She's absolutely adamant that if used correctly, forensically, she might say, that you can 
garner details from people's subconscious mind under hypnosis. And she has a very powerful argument to support that. I'm not saying she's right. I'm not saying she's wrong. But that, that's, that's her conclusions, if you like. That's fascinating. I can't wait to read your new book about that. So let me ask this then. Is this something that we've talked about on the show before? And I'm not sure if this is just uh, related to specific cases that we've encountered uh, over the years as we've interviewed some folks who've had abduction experiences and that sort of thing. Are you familiar with the idea of screen memories? Or yes. Thing? Okay. So yes. I figured you would be. So my question is, do you think that there's a possibility, you know, if you're going to go ahead and say, well, abductions are real, these things are happening, grays are real, all of these kinds of things are really happening. What do you think of these ideas that... Uh, since you were already being manipulated, because even though coming back to what Forrest said a minute ago and a very important point about Alan Godfrey's experience, you know, yes, he said to himself, as you said, he did not rubber stamp the hypnosis. He was like, hey, look, I, you know, after this thing happened to me, I read about Betty and Barney Hill. I looked into things. So I started to put this stuff into my brain. So maybe that's where it came from. But the other thing that he did, you know, he did maintain, he was like, I don't care what you say, I saw this craft. It was in the middle of the road, I saw it, and I drew it. What, you, what, you, what another thing that I loved about his sketches, he drew it while he was looking at it, not after yep. the fact when somebody asked him, what does he remember? That's really amazing. But Absolutely. the other thing is the missing time. That was a real experience for him. He suddenly was driving on the other side of it. Under hypnosis, he describes the bright light, which is, you know, was that part of that transition to the missing time. So then, because it doesn't seem to be too hard to manipulate mankind from a mental standpoint in these abduction cases, what do you think of the idea that the grays and everything that people are even recalling, whether under hypnosis or not, is really just a screen memory covering up some completely different, entirely different experience? Well, I, I think there are screen memories in a whole variety of psychological departments, if you like. People who are traumatized by a whole range of things can't necessarily deal with it subconsciously, you know, and they will have a screen memory that helps them cope with it. And they haven't dreamt up this screen memory. It's just something that, that's actually in us, you know, and that can be trauma from, you know, an assault, an accident or warfare or whatever. So screen memories are a, a known thing in, in psychology. And um, what amazes me about regressive hypnosis is that some of the experiences will say the aliens blocked my memory, so I couldn't remember this. So I went under hypnosis and I remembered it. Well, you think, well, it's about time now the aliens realize it, then it's a waste of time blocking anything, isn't it? Because all <laughs> they've got to do is stick you under hypnosis and you can remember it. I'm sure there's, if they are aliens, they're smart enough to know that by now. I don't think many people would, would admit to that, you know, and realize that. But it is, it's, it's, it's a fact, you know. But I think in trauma, and again, not all abductees are traumatized by these events. I've interviewed a number of them who thought it was a very positive experience. You know, for example, we'll go back to Pascagoula. Calvin Parker was traumatized, but his colleague who was with him that night, Charles Hickson, he thought it was great. He thought he, he was something special. They'd chosen him for some, he became like a contactee. Something was going to happen on earth and he was going to be part of it. You know, he wasn't traumatized. Whereas Calvin you know, was traumatized for the rest of his life. 
So you have two gentlemen with two different sets of ex life experiences involved in the same phenomena, but reacting different ways. But I, I really do think there are screen memories, but they're usually when we're traumatized, you know, in, in a whole variety of ways. But I'm, I'm not sure it's there to mask anything sinister from the aliens, because if it is, well, it ain't working, is it? You know? <laughs> I'd heard a figure, at least in the 1990s, that the Todmorden area accounted for maybe almost 10% of all sightings in the UK, or at least in Great Britain. And there was a quote from uh, Jenny Randalls, you mentioned, that in that area, there's a lot of reservoirs, a lot of water, as you said, rain keeps uh, flooding down, but also the land is filled with a lot of quartz. Do you think that that makes any difference in terms of the number of sightings? Well, it depends on what your your theories are on what's, what lies behind mm. the phenomenon. In that era that Jenny's talking about, one of the theories put forward, it wasn't an old theory, but it became more popular, and it was termed Earthlights. So we know that the, the, the Earth, during some earthquakes, produced like a luminous glow. So Earthlights are like a, a cousin of earthquake lights, but they're very localized. And they may be caused by where the land is under pressure, either from fault lines or bodies of water putting pressure on the strata beneath it and so on. And they give off these luminosities. I think this was just captured, uh, like uh, the past couple of months, I think this was just captured related to yes, an earthquake there somewhere. Was, uh, there was evidence finally of uh, they had it on what video. were called earthquake lights. Yeah, yeah. 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 So, I mean, there's also um, the green flash over the uh, horizon here. Yeah, yeah. so the, the theory goes on to say that these lights are electromagnetically charged and that if you get too close to them, they can literally fry your brain and you would have an experience. Not everybody. It's only certain people it affects. I'll give you an example. Just a month after Alan Godfrey's encounter, we have probably what's Britain's most famous encounter in Rendlesham Forest in Suffolk. And they saw these strange lights from the American air bases of Woodbridge and Bentwaters, and the forest lies between the two installations. And so these lights come down in the forest. They dispatched three security men, Air Force security, one stayed with the vehicle. The other two went into the forest. It was Jim Penniston and John Burroughs. Jim Penniston will tell you that he saw this triangular-shaped object, a bit like an, a big car, either just off the ground or on legs. It had red lights on top, blue lights underneath. It was smooth to touch. He had markings down the side, and he walked around it for about 45 minutes. His colleague... John Burroughs, who's just a few yards away from him, said, I never saw that. All I saw was strange lights. Now, is this an example of that Earthlight theory? There are lights there that are known, and they give off this electromagnetic force, and it affects one guy, Jim Penniston, and he sees this. It's a very real experience, you know, this triangular-shaped object. However... His colleague is not affected by it, and all he says is these strange lights. I'm not saying that is the case. I believe both gentlemen are, are honest and telling the truth, but it's an example. So the Earth lights theory was very popular in the 80s and early 90s here in the UK, promoted by Jenny and, and others. A chap called Paul Deveron was another one who wrote two fascinating books on it. 
And of course, the hillsides over Todmorden and beyond into the Yorkshire Dales, when we had a lot of sightings, are full of fault lines, bodies of water. It's unusual how these little remote places had more sightings than they did in urban areas and in the towns and cities, you know? But they did. Uh, and that's a fact. And then, you know, you can theorize all you want. They just did. So that was one of the ideas put forward to try and explain these things. And of course, you then go back to Alan Godfrey. The first thing Alan talks about seeing up the end of the road is a light. And of course, he throws his arms up across him under the hypnosis videos, the light, and he shouts, the light, the light, the light, or words to that effect. So people who believe in that theory will say, well, this is Alan encountering one of these earth lights and it affected him, and it affected what he saw, and it, but it was very real to him. I had another colleague called Albert Budden from London. Albert was a science teacher, and he, he expanded the earth lights theory a bit further to saying that the earth itself gives off these, these magnetic impulses, and also man-made structures now, like the um, telephone masts and things like that. And he said that the reason some people are affected by it is because, you know, they just are, you know, and others aren't. It's like it's like you and I can take the same medication for something. You will have the side effects that's listed on the piece of paper, and I don't, you know, and it's the same when, when you come into contact with these forces. Some are affected by it and others are not. And, you know, I, I know I knew Albert very well. Albert wrote a couple of books on this, and he, as far as he was concerned, he'd solved the subject. And that was him done. You know, we never, never seen him again, you know. But it's just a popular theory that has tended to fall away, certainly in the, the 2000s, but was very popular in the 80s and 90s. And it could explain some things, if it's correct, but it's still a theory. For example, in the parts of the Yorkshire Dales National Park in the 1980s, which is not that far from Todmorden, but it's, it's, you know, it's stretching it a little bit. We got a lot of sightings, mainly of strange lights. And again, the area is littered with fault lines and so on. However, across the sea in, in Norway, at a small place called Hestalen in central Norway, they too had these strange lights. Now, I've been there. Hestalen is surrounded by three mountains, the names of which I'll never be able to pronounce in a thousand years, you know? <laughs> and there was literally only 200 people lived there. Yeah. But they were seeing these lights down in the valley, UFO Norway, UFO Sweden set up Project Hestal and they literally camped out there and they managed to photograph it. They've filmed it since. It's the last field trip that Dr. Hynek did before he passed away. And right next to me, you can't see it, but I have Dr. Hynek's wolfskin hat that he oh. wore in Hestal and he signed it. I've got his signature oh, on the front amazing. of it. But um, so it was these strange lights. There's now a field station that monitors it 24 7. And they have captured it on, on video as well. So you see this strange luminosity flying across the valley. Now, again, they might argue, because, not, you know, the locals, some would just say, I saw these lights. Some will get a bit closer. But it's not lights. It turns out to be something else. But not all of them, just some of them. So whether that's a theory that's worth pursuing, I'll, I'll leave your, your listeners to think about. 
Well, we have those here in North Carolina. Uh, you, perhaps you've heard of them, the Brown Mountain Lights. Which Yes, um, you have the Brown Mountain Lights. You have the Min Min Lights in Australia. Mm-hmm. You have the Marfa Lights in Texas. Texas is right. There's, there's other areas. For example, we live in just north of the Pennine chain of hills. Yes. It runs down Britain. If we go a bit further south into the counties further down, if you go into Derbyshire and the Peak District, as you go down this particular road, again, it's a small country road. It's a big rock outcrop that hits you in the face. And it's called Shining Clough. Because every now and again, it gives off these strange lights. It's not a reflection. You know, it's the rock itself. Out on the moors in the Peak District, the um, people were called out. The, the local volunteers, mountain volunteers, were called out because people had seen these strange lights going across the moors and they thought it was walkers that had got lost. And of course, there's nobody there, you know? So, again, these lights, we can go back, we can call them fairy lights. They are intertwined in the folklore, certainly of this country, and others as well, I dare say, like the Min Min lights from, from Australia. So there's different countries around the world will have their own version of these. Now, whether they, you know, do the things that people claim they may be able to do and is a different matter. But it's an interesting look at the subject, if nothing else. Hello, everybody. I'm David Mars, producer of the Hot Wampa Science Fiction podcast. And when I'm not working on my own show, I'm listening to Astonishing Legends with Scott and Forrest. Let's get back to the show. All right. So there's a detail associated with Godfrey and also the night that that Alan saw the craft. One thing in particular was when you talked about cows that were missing, there was actually more to that. There was a woman that he visited and he talks about this in his book. I think she was around 80 years old. She had called and there had been multiple calls that night about people saying that there was this small herd of cows in their yard running around their house or near their property where there should not be any cows. You know, it sounds like a a funny episode of All Creatures Great and Small or something from that book because just like, okay, we're running around looking for these cows. And so he goes out and he meets with this older woman. He goes in the house and she's like, well, they were all right out here in the yard. I saw cows out there. And he says, okay, well, we, we should need to figure out where they came from. And and he said, well, when, where did they go? And she goes, well, I, I don't know. She goes, there was a bright light, a very bright light, and they disappeared. Or I didn't see them anymore. And it was before you got here. And so... He was like, okay, that's strange, you know, in his mind and what he wrote in his book was that there, you know, maybe there was a car coming down the road in front of her property, but he was uh, quite convinced. And he said this uh, very clearly. He was like, yeah, she was older, but she seemed very much to have her wits about her, not senile, nothing. It was like, he believed her. That's prior to his personal encounter, which I don't think he describes in the waking state or in his encounter, the light. I think he only describes that in the hypnosis and by the way, I saw just a clip of that. The the footage that you describe is, I think it was on either on Strange But True or it was on um, Grenada up front, Grenada up yeah, front. Yeah, pro- probably both of them, yeah. Yeah, and where he leans back and he puts his arms up, it's unbelievable. Yeah. It seems so real, the experience that he's having, the panic you feel for him in that yeah. moment. Like after he found himself on the other side driving and he turned back around, he picks up another officer on foot patrol, I believe. Yeah, yeah. They come back. That officer personally witnesses the dry ground on the street and the swirled leaves and branches and explains that, you know, I saw, I can see the evidence of something strange has happened here, although the craft was gone. 
But then they go over to Centervale Park, I believe, and it's locked up. They have to jump a fence or something. And lo and behold, on the rugby pitch, cows. Yep, there the cows were found in a park with the gates locked. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is straight out of Skinwalker Ranch with the cows getting moved <laughs> all around. It's like, so that that's one of the craziest things because this is not a hypnosis detail. This is nope. a real world detail with witnesses. So whatever's going on that night, there seems to be a small group of cows being teleported all over town. I wouldn't go that far. What I would say is that there's these other stories that night. Whether they're connected to what Alan saw or not is a different matter. I think it's a huge leap of faith. All we okay. Can- All we can say is this is what was reported that night. This is what Alan later found. The cows were in this park. And that's it. Again, you you draw your own conclusions from it. It is peculiar. But peculiar things do happen. I mean, they're not necessarily related. But it is a curious thing, yes. And, uh, you know, whether it's connected or not, I, I wouldn't like to say. I really wouldn't. But, yeah, the cows were found in a park with the gates locked. But... I don't know if there was another entrance, whether, you know, did the cows trample over some bushes to get in? Who knows? Yeah, he seemed, he said in the book, he said they would have had to gone up a steep flight of stairs or something like that to get in there, he thought. Well, I don't know. But yeah. um, I don't think he will have spent too much trying to figure it out. He found the cows and that's game over for the night. <laughs> you know, that's what he was doing. But yes, because he yeah. he'd spoken to the uh, the officer on foot patrol prior to his sighting. So he was down in right. the town center. So he knew there was a colleague there. Right. What is, is even more interesting is that Alan was asked to write a report, which he did, and he submitted it. And like all police stations, that report would have been sent to the Ministry of Defense in the UK. But when the MOD released slowly but surely their UFO files down the years that was released to the Public Records Office, there is no sign of Alan Godfrey's encounter, no sign of his, his report whatsoever. Now, it could be a clerical letter that it's stuck in a file under a different heading in some other filing cabinet because it was all paper then. There was no there was no digital formats. It was all in writing. Could have got lost. Who knows? But I, I again, it's not there. That's all we can say. It is not there. And I know the gentleman who was responsible or worked with the National Archives to release all the MOD files, Dr. David Clark in Sheffield. I asked him at the time, if you find, if Alan Godfrey's encounter crops up in any of these files that are being released, I'd love to see the paperwork of that, but it's not there. It's not to be found anywhere. And you guys have an equivalency to the Freedom of Information Act there, right? We do. We have it, but whether it's of any use or not, it's a different matter, you know? I've tried uh-huh. it several times and got nowhere. Okay. But it's there. Right. But uh, you can't find anything official. Alan did write the report. There is no no problem with that, but we can't find it anywhere. The last chapter in Alan's book was written by Jenny, who is, a, a, again, a prominent uh, UFO researcher over there, right? And Jenny talks about a lot of interesting things, but one of the things that came forward maybe after the book was written and late at the late date was another witness the night of Alan's encounter, a bus driver. Do you know about this? Yeah, I mean, there were a few reports from around that time. What originally was thought as well, there was three other police officers out on the moors at night. They were actually looking for stolen motorcycles. Apparently, they would steal them, drive them around the moors, and then dump them, you know? Right, right. And it was two men and one, one female officer. And they saw this, no joking here, they saw this blue light. In the sky, not down in the streets. And 
I met one of these officers, I interviewed him, and initially we thought it was the same night as Alan's, but it turned out it was a few nights later, I believe. Um, but there were other, re other reports of some lights that night. And um, as it was when the story eventually got out in the newspapers that then other people stepped forward. So there were, there were other instances, yes. Jenny mentioned in this last chapter a gentleman named Bob Coates who was a bus driver. And he was coming into town. This is something that I read yesterday, which I thought was fascinating, by the way. Todd Morton, Todd Morton, I'm determined to try and say it right. Todd Morton. Is that it's it? It's close. Okay. Uh, it was the second area in the British Isles to have bus service, like one of the earliest ones to have a bus service, which I thought was interesting. Way back, going way back before this. But anyway, the, this uh, gentleman, Bob Coates, was a bus driver, and he later came forward after he figured out all the dates, I guess, and heard about it, that he was coming back that night on that road and he came across the spot and Alan was already gone, either had gone to get the uh, other officer or was maybe examining the park or something. But he's, it was strange enough to this driver that he stopped and got out and he examined the ground. He saw that it was dry. He saw the swirled branches. But the other thing he said was that he could feel an updraft, some kind of strange updraft, which he didn't necessarily describe as wind, but like a force pushing up, but it stopped at a certain height. Like, I don't know what the height was. I don't know if he even said specifically, but you got the impression it was four or five feet, which was about the height that Alan thought the craft was at. You couldn't feel that anymore. So it was almost like an atmospheric residue that he would stood out in his mind. Mm. And some other point in his book, there was the point that Alan... You know, because folks were like, oh, what this thing he drew, it looks like a bus. It was a bus. And so then people were like, oh, well, it was Bob Coates' bus. He had stopped to check this out anyway. But then Bob was like, no, I didn't park sideways across the road. Also, Alan used to drive a bus. He knows what a bus looks like. It was one of the many jobs that he had. Yeah. So all of that stuff, I just thought that was interesting in terms of uh, corroboration of multiple points of input on that uh, in terms of witnesses. Well, the way they get the bus idea from is under the hypnosis, Alan at first says, it's a bus. Right. And then he says, it's not a bus. And his, his demeanor under hypnosis then changes because it will make sense to him. You know, it's something in the distance. Oh, it must be a bus. Hang on a minute. That's not a flaming bus. Yeah. But this is under hypnosis. So that's where the skeptical arguments came in that Alan sees a bus, perhaps dropping people off at the mill, you know, coming to work that morning, and for some reason has this psychological episode that turns from a bus to a flying saucer and aliens. But remember, the patrol car was stationary, and then on the main road through the town, so the bus would have come straight past Allen. I don't know of anybody who reported a, police, a stationary police car with right. the police officers sat in it, staring into space, you know, right. as if he's under some kind of spell. Right. Because that's what they're wanting you to believe. And I can understand from a skeptical point of view why they would come to that conclusion. But I, to me, it doesn't add up. It does not add up at all, you know. But, yeah, the bus driver did say exactly what you've said there. But then if you go back to Albert Budden and his, his ideas of natural forces within the Earth, creating these effects maybe this was one maybe this guy could feel it but it didn't have any adverse effects on him you know he wasn't allergic to it that's what albert says some people are allergic to these forces and they have a reaction hmm. but to them it's very real it's, you know they don't know this is, is not happening 
while others are not allergic to them and they have no reaction whatsoever. He's, he's suggesting that those forces could create a hallucination for certain individuals. Absolutely, and one that's very real, you know, that you can't uh -huh. separate from, from any other experience you've had, from eating your breakfast that morning to going to bed at night. You know, it is very real to the individual. My only problem with that is, of course, there are a number of encounters like this where people are actually driving the car or driving their vehicle. Right. So if you were affected by this, why the hell didn't you crash the car? You know, because yeah. you're yeah. clearly not under control, <laughs> you know, or why didn't you fall over or you do, you know, and somebody see you stood there as if you were having some kind of strange experience. But, you know, no, what I'm saying is there's no third party evidence to support these incidents. Nobody walked past Alan Godfrey sat looking perplexed in his car that morning. Right. You know, or drove right. past him or whatever, you know? Right. And not only that, again, if these forces, we'll call them, you know, forces, surely they would, they would come from the same place a lot. So surely you should have a lot of these encounters, these experiences on that same stretch of road, whereas you don't, you know? So I don't know. You know, I don't know. All I know is that Alan was telling the truth. Whatever is the nature and origin of his experience can be debated forever. But I know, he, I, I would guarantee he's not lying. It's not a hoax. It's not made up. He's telling the exact truth as he remembered it, you know, without a doubt. One of the things that Forrest had mentioned earlier was about the this area being a hot spot. Do you find as an investigator that there is a high incidence or, or, or more stories in, in this general area? The problem you have with hot spots is what comes first? Is it the UFO sightings or is it the UFO investigator? It's right. like the old saying, isn't it? You know, if a tree falls over in the forest and there's nobody there, does it still make a noise? You know, science will tell you, yes, it does. But there's nobody there to hear it, of course. So Jenny and other colleagues in these areas were very active in these days. So therefore, they received the sightings. So which came first? All you can say is that for whatever reason, the, the, a number of sightings were reported. And they may have been higher to other parts of the country simply because in other parts of the country, there was nobody to report them to. In the early 80s through to the mid-1980s, like I told you, we had a lot of sightings from a, a semi-rural area in the Yorkshire Dales National Park, and they made its way to us. But we made ourselves very visible in those areas. We would do talks there. We'd leave leaflets in pub notice boards at police officers' stations. And all kind of, when people used to phone us or contact us, we used to ask them how they'd found us. You know, that way we knew, you know, what approach was working. You know, and we had a lot of sightings reported to us. But it may be in the other parts of the country, there was nobody to report them to. Therefore, you've got no statistics. So all you can say is that we're, you can call it a hotspot. We used to call them window areas. Now the portals, same thing, different name. You know, so you have to ask which came first. But yes, there were a lot of sightings, but we also know through experience that most UFO sightings, irrespective of who they're reported to, have a conventional explanation. So, you know, let's not forget that. You often hear people say, oh, it's 95% is a mundane or, or prosaic explanation. What, what do you think that percentage is corrected for today? I know, I think, you know, people repeat that simply because it's what 
always always been said, you know, at some point that percentage will have cropped up and people just repeat it without any Mm -hmm. evidence to support it. In Mm -hmm. my experience, and this is the stuff that's come my way, I think it's a lot less than that. I think it's less than 1%, very few. There are a lot of cases where we don't have a conclusion to it simply because we don't have enough information. You know, Mr. Smith reports a little light flying across the sky. It could be any damn thing, but there is no way you're going to spend hours and hours trying to track it down, you know, but it'll be a drone or a firework or, you know, an aircraft, more, more than likely. I live a mile from the motorway. At the other side of the motorway, we have a big retail park and a big entertainment park, and they have things outside, and sometimes they have these huge spotlights into the sky, and they're spinning around. So when you drive up the motorway and it's low cloud, they don't half look weird on the clouds, you know? Mm -hmm. But the Mm -hmm. locals know what they are. I've seen reports of those this year online. People saying, oh, look at this, look at this, look at this. I'm thinking, no, you idiot. I know exactly what that is, but I'm not not going to waste my time trying to tell you, you know? Right, right. So in my my experience, the, the things that, you know, leave you scratching your head are a few and far between. And I would argue that Alan's case is one of those. Right. Well, out of the cases of uh, what you think might be genuine high strangeness or just statistically reporting, do you think there are any areas in the UK that get an abnormally high number of uh, events or reporting? Again, it's difficult to say. I've just written a a piece Hmm. for a colleague of mine in Scotland. And again, there's an area in Scotland you drive past and not take a second look at. You know, I've been there. It's called Bonnie Bridge. And for whatever reason, in the 1990s, they had a lot of reports from the Bonnie Bridge area. And my colleague Malcolm Robinson and his colleague Ron Halliday are writing a book about it. And they asked me to write a piece. What did I think was behind these sightings? I don't really know. But for some reason, they were reported. And again, you know, the investigators were there to look into them. And most of them are prosaic. You know, they're strange lights, could be anything. But there are certainly, what we can say, is that there are areas from time to time that, for whatever reason, do have a lot of reports come from them. Now, whether it's more than any other area remains to be seen. But what we did in in the Yorkshire Dales National Park, just outside of the town of Skipton, there's some moors. And there's no sheep or, or any livestock. It's mainly game birds. So they have grouse and pheasant. And come August, they, you know, they blow the things to smithereens. <laughs> you know, they shoot them. And um, so in, in and amongst these areas, we had a lot of sightings. So what we did, I forget what year it was, it was early 80s, we, we literally put a caravan on the top of these moors and we manned it for 24 hours a day, seven days a week, for a whole week. And we put signposts saying Skywatch, you know, UFO Skywatch, and we did some local media and we encouraged the local inhabitants from the towns around to come and visit us and tell us what they'd seen. And what we found that, the reports that we were receiving at that time were nothing new. They went back decades, same type of sightings. But of course, decades ago, there was nobody to report them to. And not only that, we found out there was other strange phenomena in these areas. There was witchcraft practice there. There was the black dog stories and all kinds of stuff. You know, one of our, I'll give you an example. One of our members was a, a police sergeant in the area. He got called out one night to a burglary. It's an elderly couple. They've been out for the evening. They come back home. They said they've been burgled. So he turns up at their house and he said, what's been stolen? 
And they said nothing. And he's thinking, hang on a minute, you've called me out on a burglary and you're telling me that nothing's been stolen. So he said, what, you know, what's the problem? He said, look at all our um, ornaments. They've all been turned upside down while we were out. There's no forced entry. The door's still locked. All the windows are intact. But they were all turned upside down. He had all these things in the same sort of locale, the same geographical area. Whether they're connected or not is, is another argument. So, yes, there are hotspots. And we see that, for example, 1989, 1990, it was Belgium with the Belgian triangles. You know, that was a hotspot. We had a lot of sightings here in the, in the mid-1980s. Before that, if you go to the early 80s, it was upstate New York. They had all the um, triangles seen there. Mm -hmm. And if you go back, we were to, I mentioned the Pascagoula case from 1973 in Mississippi. When you study the incidents there, you'll find out that the whole of the United States that year had a flap of high strangeness sightings. A chap called David Webb penned a book on it called 1973, the year of the humanoids. And it wasn't just in one month, it was across yes, the states. I know that book. Yeah. And um, Kevin Randall, I've just published his book, and it's called 1973, the, the year of UFO sightings, you know, humanoids, abductions, and landings. And he highlights some of the other cases from that year. There are times and locations that will have a spate of sightings, but then there's larger geographical areas that will spread even further and even longer. But it all depends on if there's anybody there to investigate them in the first place or to report them to, you know? Yeah, Alan uh, himself said towards the end of his book, given what happened to him, which we're going to talk about more in, in when we do part two of our series, but the aftermath, he said had he known everything that was coming, he wouldn't have reported it. Absolutely. And like I said, Alan was a, a decorated police officer, well-respected. He asked for permission to go on the record officially from his chief constable. He couldn't get any yeah. higher than that, you know, Yeah. in uniform. And they gave him permission. So Alan, you know, did some newspaper coverage. He did some TV coverage in uniform. And it was the worst thing he could have ever done because they made his life a misery. I know Alan mentioned it at the time, you know, afterwards, but not a lot. They wanted to get rid of him, but yet they'd given him permission to do that. They could have just said no. If I remember correctly, they even asked him to do this one particular interview. They said, do this. Well, yeah. you have to remember as well, Alan got injured in a, in a yes. pub fight and he lost, he lost a testicle, right? Yeah. And they took him from his patrol vehicle and said he had to ride a bicycle. Yeah, I did read about that. Which, you know, with his injury, is not the kind of thing you want to be doing. And they knew about no. this. This will also give you an idea. When Alan had finished, he's come out of the force, he had his call, you know, a, a leaving celebration in a local pub. And the pub licensing hours meant you, could, you had to stop serving alcohol at 10.30 in the evening. Officers from his own police station raided the pub after 10.30 to see if they were still serving beer after hours. Yeah. I bonkers. So I don't blame him. I don't blame him. You know, when you talk about it, people like Alan had a, a much more to lose than they did to gain by going on the record. And Alan paid the price. He's an example of that. That 
that's going to wrap up part one of our two-part series on the paranormal cold case of Zygmunt Adamski. We'll be back next week with part two, our second-to-last show of 2023. Don't forget to find and subscribe to the other two shows on the Astonishing Legends Network, The Midnight Library and Scared All the Time. Both are available wherever you get your podcasts. Astonishing Legends is edited by Sarah Voorhees-Wendell at BW Sound and co-produced by Tess Feifel, who is also head of research and the social media manager. Our technical producer is Ed Vicola, or as we call him, the mechanic. Special thanks to our announcer, John Bolin. Hi, I'm Catherine Carlson. Hi, I'm Tristan Carlson. Hi, I'm David Mars. Galaxy wide in perpetuity. I understand this is with no implied promise of present or future compensation. How to spell my name? M A R R S. I understand this is with no implied promise of present or future compensation. Our theme, which is available as a ringtone, was composed by Judson Crane at foundermusic.com. All other music and sound design for the show is composed and created by Alan Carestia. Our logo was created by Tommy Beaver Design, and our animated graphics for social media and YouTube are done by Joshua Sloan at deadstreetproductions.com. Every episode going back to September of 2020 has a transcription available on its corresponding webpage at our website. Earlier transcriptions can be made available upon request to astonishingcontact at gmail.com. Astonishing Legends would not be possible without you, our listeners. Visit our store at astonishinglegends.com or interact with us and other listeners on Instagram, Twitter, Discord, Facebook, and YouTube. You can also visit us at patreon.com slash astonishinglegends where patrons have access to additional bonus content, including the Patreon-exclusive show, Astonishing Junk Drawer, which is available every week the main show is not. No part of this show may be reproduced anywhere without permission. Copyright Astonishing Legends Productions. Good night.